Welcome back to the Fried Egg Podcast and part two of our most recent episode with Jeff Ogilvie. If you missed part one, go check it out in uh, the iTunes, Stitcher, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Without further ado, here is Jeff Ogilvie. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing. Playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. It's not to be feared, though. It's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. So I, I read this uh, your article, the my Scottish uh, pilgrimage on mm-hmm. uh, Golf Australia magazine. Everybody should listen. Everybody should read it. It's a good, good article. Um, so you went out. How many guys was it? Twelve. We had twelve guys. Yeah. So we had a friend um, who's caddy for me a little bit. He's been around the tour. For, he was around the tour when I started. Australian kid caddy for Seve. Somehow, somehow. Sevi heard about him and said, "I want this kid to caddy for me in oh, Europe cool. when he was like 19." So I mean, what a I mean, what a start to your kind of <laughs> caddying career or whatever. Um, he was a decent golfer, Cameron, but he caddied for Sevi, and including at the Masters, and then ended up he he caddied for probably 10 years for all the Australians, caddy for me for a little a few times, Stephen Leaney, Greg Chalmers, Matt Gog, and Craig Spence, a bunch of Australians all the way through, and then after a while he didn't want to do it anymore, and he became a business guy, like a smart person, and did that but it was his 40th this year in october so we went to 12 guys 12 americans and 12 australians went to scotland um and we stayed in fife so quite near st andrews like the county of fife Mm -hmm. which is kind of where a real good sweet spot of golf is yeah and we camped in a a house in ely which is this mint little town very scottish uh 15 or so minutes from St. Andrews across the other side, just kind of staring across the water at Edinburgh. Um, rented this house and we just drove every day and we played the new course, the castle course and Carnoustie and Ely and London links. And it was just great pubs at night. And yeah, it's my so, favorite thing to do. It makes you fall in love with golf again. If you're getting a little bit jaded, you just got to go do that. It's, yeah. It's funny. I, I like haven't been in a golf mood lately and went out and played 10 holes the la- I was traveling last week and we played foursomes. Did you, do you guys play all, I saw you played like president cup, Ryder cup style. Did you play foursomes? It's funny. Like I, you're probably the same. I have always hated foursomes, right? It's just not enough golf for me. I don't get enough shots. I'm like, seriously, I just want to hit more shots. And it feels like you can go four or five holes without hitting any real shots sometimes, depending on the course and foursomes. And he keeps, He'll tree you in the trees and you'll chip it out and then he'll hit it in the bunker and you'll hit a bunker shot. You won't any real swings for five holes. But um, now that I'm older and this trip, I've seen it a few times in Scotland, but this trip especially, one that, one of our last rounds was at Ely, which is a really fun little course. And people have to read the article to work out why Ely is a fun little course. But um, it's uh, a group came through playing foursomes, like the proper Scottish way. And the Scottish yeah. way to play foursomes, the original way is – the, the two that tee off on the odds, they basically play the course together. And the evens, they walk up the first fairway and they're waiting on the first fairway for when the, the first tee guys hit. So they hit. So you hit off the first tee and you just walk to the green, theoretically. And yeah. then you kind of leapfrog and you don't really see your playing partners until the end. But see, you play in like two hours. They play in two hours and 15 minutes, 18 holes, because they're leapfrogging each other and they're doing it really well. And done that way, it's a brilliant way to play golf. Um quite social you're basically with your guy your odds or evens guy all the way around and uh you're playing two and a half hours and then you you go have lunch um and we had a group come through so we've never i've never actually done it that way but it looks great to do it that way yeah i I think that's a you could play 36 holes in four hours which is kind of cool well muirfield have certain rules muirfield scotland um certain days a week and certain times it's only foursomes play that's the only way and it's such a part of golf at Muirfield that they have – there's all these paths. Muirfield is basically no trees and uh, 
the hazards are the bunkers and the rough. Like between, they have like that long hay at Muirfield um, off the fairway. Well, there's all these paths at Muirfield cut from the first fairway up to the, se- I don't know if there is actually one there, but like from the first fairway up to the middle of the second fairway. And mm. like from certain paths that don't make any sense when you play the course normally. But as soon as you play foursomes, they make complete sense because the people who aren't hitting those shots take those paths to where the ball is going to be. That's how like entrenched foursomes is in Scotland. They actually mow paths, foursomes paths into the course as well as singles paths. It's quite interesting. Yeah. It's, huh. it's a, I don't know. I, I think it's a, I think it's, we need more of that because then you could play 18 holes in two hours. It's like a, so another method of, you know, time is obviously like the biggest constraint for millennials. You know, parents are spending more time with their kids than ever before. So I think that's like one of the big things that, the golf's got a challenge of his time. It's like, here's a great way to get exercise, play 18 holes and like, you know, and it's more social because you're with somebody. You're never, you you aren't splitting off as much. I feel like. Yeah. I think this, there's gotta be a few things that we can do to attract the millennials to golf. I think it's, it, time is really important, right? I mean, I, there is no less time. 24 hours is still 24 hours, right? A day is still a day. It's never, any different than it has before but you're right people want to fit more into their day now don't they yeah so it's a challenge like there's an interesting thing like say i've got a friend in lubbock texas who has this driving range it's a bit like top golf um works on flight scopes and it has a whole computer software and you go and you hit balls and, and you play games on these things well the ability with this system is that if and or when there are multiple of these ranges around, they're going to be able to have tournaments between players at different ranges at the same time, wow. like real-time live tournaments, right, on these flight scopes and track man kind of setup. That somehow turned into real golf would be quite interesting if you could connect these millennials digitally and have live events mm-hmm. all around the world all at the same time. You know, that kind of matches the whole YouTube streaming of place where they're at i don't know how you work that into real golf but um have you ever, interesting sides to all of that have you ever played that but, played screen golf in korea no but that's what they do right yeah they they, they, they all in simulators and they play against each other but in different places right yeah it's like a, i guess it's crazy how popular it is i guess there's no golf courses right i mean but that's my kids would be into that because it's it's a video game kind of, you know, yeah. um, and you don't want to turn golf into a video game, certainly. But there's going to be a side of the sport to appeal to this generation. It's going to need to to embrace that style of thing, don't you think? Well, I think what it is, it has value in the sense that someone that plays like screen golf or that is more likely to play real golf then. Yeah. Yeah, it's like any sort of golf is good golf, right? Yeah. At this it's, point, it's um, not—it's not, it's not yeah. like you're dividing the pie; you're growing the pie. Yes, it's yeah, putting another string in the bow. Yeah, you know? yeah. The uh, hey, you've played Chicago Golf Club, right? One of my favorites. How how similar? I've I saw pictures. I've I've looked at. I haven't played Muirfield, and I've looked at pictures. It it just looks so similar to Chicago golf. Yeah, it is completely in the way that it's like kind of a rectangular squarish property that you can see from one spot, basically. You can basically see across Chicago from the clubhouse, right? Basically, I mean, it's undulation, but it's not not an adventure as much when you go out in the course because you can kind of see it all out there and it's a relatively simple property at first and it's one of those things that just grows on you and grows on you and grows on you and you kind of see it as you play, if that makes sense. It builds on you. Um, Muirfield is similar. It's not as quirky, I would say. Mm-hmm. Chicago's quite quirky, which is the interesting part, right? Those McDonald Rayner templates. Those, some of his best ones there. Those greens are um, terrifying. I would say Muirfield. See, Lynx golf, there's two styles of Lynx golf for me. There's the quirk, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the Presswick last few holes, the, the North Berry kind of stone walls and redans and Beeritzes and there's that quirky weird stuff the periscope at Ely and and then there's the just the great quality 
strong normal ones like like Birkdale and Muirfield and Carnoustie and if that makes sense. No yeah. quirk, just strong, good golf. Muirfield, I would say, is the strongest eighteen links holes in a row. Like it's just brilliant. Changes directions all the time. Like goes on the outside and the front and the inside loop on the back. It gets better and better. You change angles the last five or six holes, every single one coming in. Par three, par five, par four. I mean it's just a a really, 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 really good, great golf course. That's the way I'll describe it. And Chicago golf clubs are the same, but it has a bit more quirk. Mm-hmm. What, so Muirfield's brilliant, brilliant. The, the, one of the things that I found most interesting in your article was towards the end where you said Lynx golf is actually more varied than Parkland golf because there are no rules. And it's like if you looked at pictures, though, someone would – say parkland golf's way more varied because of you know they'd be like oh well there's a lake there and a tree there yeah well i think what what happens on a lynx if when you grow up in a parkland say let's say midwest america parkland headspace um every lynx course you see on tv looks the same you know it's probably the scottish probably think the same about parkland courses when they say like all the same but it's not until you start playing links and you realize that some of them are 5,000 yards and goofy and there's fairways are crossing and there's stone walls and all sorts of craziness going on. And then others are just really good, strong, long golf courses like Birkdale or Muirfield or Carnoustie. You realize the variety is just is outrageous in links golf. There's some that play quite soft on these kind of certain areas, some that the animals, the sheep are cutting the fairways and, some are less than 18 holes, some are nine, some yeah, cross holes. It's just lots of more different stuff going on. And you don't know, when you stand on the first tee of a Lynx court, if you did the tour of the coast of Britain, you you have no idea what you're going to find when you stand on the first tee for the next 18 holes in that respect. Whereas when you stand on a parkland first tee, you've probably got a pretty good idea of what's in front of you. you know? mm-hmm. but that that would be the, the sense that it would be more varied. Yeah, yeah that make, makes sense. It's... Uh... You you kind of talked about in that also about you know, the crazy stuff that you can't build anymore, and that, oh, it's the best stuff. It's like my biggest frustration is like the really cool stuff nobody would allow to be built. It's the same around the world though, right? Like uh, golf course clubhouses are just getting boring because everyone's scared to do anything crazy, right? It's like it's like the DeLorean, the car. I mean. It was probably crap, but it was super cool, right? It was different. <laughs> you know, no one's allowed to do that anymore, even with a car, right? It's the same with golf. It doesn't necessarily. There's some stuff at Presswick, say, the last four or five holes. I mean, you're hitting over mountainous dunes, and it's just completely ridiculous, yeah. right? But but if you play it a few times, you begin to realize, well, actually, no, this is kind of why I do this. This is me with a wiffle ball going from house to house, you know. This is Bubba Watson. This is golf. This is the adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not until you do it a few times. And I think if you'd give me a brand new course that had shot styles like North Berwick or Presswick, I'd freak out. I would have initially. But because I've played all those other ones, I can I see that they can kind of work. I mean, National, Shinnecock, that has some kind of crazy stuff, right? That you'd have a, you can't build a lot of that stuff now. Oakmont, how could you build Oakmont now? Augusta, you couldn't build any of those greens at Augusta now. They wouldn't let you. Um, isn't that amazing <laughs> that they don't? That the, the top ten golf courses in the world, you really would have trouble building them now. That's Alliance wouldn't let you do it. That's why I was. I one of the interesting thing when I was writing that craft beer article comparing architecture to it is like, I think golf got so conditioned now that we're drinking. You know, we're so used to drinking Coors Light that so many golfers, when they have that first taste of a, you know, a hop-infused double IPA, which, you know, from a beer drinking perspective, I don't really even like that beer that much, but people love it, you know. But, like, it, like it's like a, a shock to the system. So, like, we can't even build new courses like that because of that. You're right. That beer article is spot on. I mean, that's such a great analogy for the whole thing. Um you're right. Like you get, you just get used to drinking Coors Light, and you begin after a while to think that Coors Light is beer, right? 
Yeah. It's a great drink and it's 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 fits into its market. And there is a room in the market for that product. The same with the golf course. Mm-hmm. But you certainly have a more interesting experience drinking a double IPA, right? It might not be your cup of tea, but it's a story to tell and you remember it. And it yeah. maybe makes you more interested in maybe not double IPAs, but maybe somewhere in between, <laughs> you yeah, know? Exactly. So I think everything, everything has, you go play National Golf Links or Presswick or North Berwick or Ely or any of these kind of off to one side, interesting kind of places, which is the double IPA. And then, well, maybe it thinks, well, this is a bit much for me, but maybe I'll go halfway back and try a Amber or something, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, for sure. It's, it, it, I don't know. It, it, in Australia, the way I understand Australian golf is you've got a few really great courses and then a lot, it's, it's, a lot of it's been Americanized kind of. And it's fascinating when you compare like American golf culture to Scottish golf culture. And I think that's what you touched on. Like that's the Scottish golf culture is the culture that's been conditioned to drink and has drank all different types of beer. And I feel like American Mm -hmm. golf, we've been conditioned to drink one type of beer and anything that's different from that type of beer, wildly different is we is, is, is not fair. Yeah. Or we don't consider it beer anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. like it's, uh, I don't know. Australia, this, we are kind of, I mean, in every different way, we're kind of halfway between Britain and America in spirit, you know, um, a lot of our golf culture was created from the British model. Um, that kind of old school kind of, uh, British model. I don't know how to describe that. It's not about the money. It's about who you know and shaking all the right hands and not really expensive. It's more of a prestige thing than a money thing. Whereas America thing, it's just where you, you, you kind of, you come up with your money and you join and you, every, all the facilities are amazing because everyone just piles in all the money and it's great. It's a different kind of mentality. Um, I don't know if I'm getting anyone here explaining it, but we're more British in that we don't want to spend a lot of money on golf. Golf is cheap in Britain. Um, relatively, there's some expensive clubs, but the, the Scotland, here's an example. The people who live in Fife, that county that St. Andrews is in, there's seven courses that the St. Andrews Links Trust, um, operates old course, new course, Jubilee, castle course, all that. If you live in Fife, you get a links pass. If you want to join it, I think three or 400 pounds for the whole year. And you can play any of those courses whenever you want. So (laughs) four of the top hundred courses in the world, you can play whenever you want, basically. Um, for 400 pounds a year. So Australia's more that model, more, more, it's less money. Um, and, but you've got to kind of know the right people. So the, the money isn't spent around the edges. It's all about the golf. That may, you, you don't have amazing parking lots and clubhouses generally. We have nice ones, but the money is spent on the golf. Now the golf courses, we go to the golf course to play golf, not for the whole, I don't know how to describe the difference. It's just, a little bit different, less money, more bare bones experience and more purely we sit around. We don't need a fancy grill and a bar to sit around and talk about our round. As long as we can get a beer, we're happy about it. You know, and that's Britain. The clubhouses are tiny generally at all these linkses. Uh, it's often just two bathrooms and a little bar room to sit in, get a sandwich and to have a beer and lie about your golf game. And then you go do it again the next day. Um, it's that that's the thing that frustrates me most is like the idea that good design and like quirk or like a you know a golf course that's well laid out is more expensive than a golf course that's poorly laid out and and it's like actually the opposite that's actually that's actually the spirit that it's they spend the money if they can in scotland and in australia if we have the money we spend it but it isn't considered a lesser product if the money isn't spent on it yeah it's uh if that makes sense uh-huh. there's definitely a sense sometimes i think in the u.s that the more money you spend on it the better it is yeah um and that's often true i mean august is a pretty impressive product right but it's not always true um and because the the money for the the, the economy is just not as big i think when you have less money you're forced to get better at what you do a little bit because you don't you can't just throw money at it. You actually have to throw some brain power at it a little bit. And I think sometimes Scotland, especially they've never had money to spend on anything golf. So they just let it evolve. And so really all they do is 
play along the ground that was always there and they just pay a couple of guys to cut the grass a bit shorter than it naturally would be, you know, kind of, you know. Yeah. Um, That's... So the spirit of the club just develops into a different thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like that's it's like the Sweetens Cove place in 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 Chattanooga area. It's like become a nine hole destination golf course, and it doesn't even have a clubhouse. It doesn't have running water. Like, it doesn't need it, right? Probably. It's just got nine good golf holes. It's got a shack uh, for a clubhouse where people go check in and pay. That's it. And, and really, at the end of the day, I think, I mean. Bandon and Sandhills and Nova Scotia and that. I mean, he's Mike is building nice facilities around these courses, but generally people go because the courses are great. You know, yeah. they're not easy places to get to these, you know, some of these places. Um, the golf course will get them there. If you build an interesting enough and a fun enough golf course, the golfers will come, you know, because that's really – we forget about it sometimes when we get so spoilt on the edges of golf and the fringes, you know, with the, all the nice stuff around the edges. But really, we do it because of the first tee to the 18th green, right? That's what we're doing it for. So if you yeah. if you make that good enough, everyone's going to come. Or not everyone. Uh, people are going to come. Yeah, yeah. It's like if you just find a good piece of land and, and build a good golf course, you know, good piece of land, don't screw it up. Like that's a, one of the things that sweetens is – it's it's like dead flat. It's just a manufactured course too, which is amazing. It's I mean, I can't believe that that place survived is is where it is and you know the business model. But it's all because of the modern era. That's the beauty of our of the millennials is they can find places. Yeah, no, you've never not heard of anything, right? I mean, I'm still hearing about stuff now because I probably don't use the internet as well as I should. Um, yeah. these guys know everything about everything. Um, see. So, you're back in uh, Melbourne, and uh, you just moved back. What's the what's the best aspect of being back? You know, what's the one thing you miss the most about the U.S.? Well, I've been here probably two weeks, so I'm not missing anything yet, but I'm sure I will. Um, I miss my uh, friends and my like Whisper Up crew. You know that I was playing with in Scottsdale regularly. Um, I had a pretty nice little setup in that respect in Scottsdale, um, but it's just it really, it, it's not a it's a, it's just home. I'm just home, yeah. and I, it's my people. I go down and get a coffee in the morning in the cafe, and I bump into people I went to high school with 20 years ago, and I hadn't seen them, and little stuff like that. I mean, it's not it's in, that's the beautiful thing about this for me is that aspect. I, I'm just amongst my people again for a little bit, you know. So that's yeah. nice. Also, I live right next door to Royal Melbourne. Um, <laughs> Which isn't bad, <laughs> which which in turn is right next door to Victoria Golf Club, which is my uh, the course I grew up at. So uh, it's a pretty good spot. I'm kind of going through my schedule for the year. I'm gonna I'm playing a couple of tournaments here um, in the next month. I'm playing the Victorian Sorry. Open, which is interesting. Um, I saw that. That's I'm really excited about it actually because it's it should move the needle that week or get noticed because it's men and women playing a tournament at the same time for the same prize money. Um, 1.5 million for the men, 1.5 million for the girls. LPGA women's event, full LPGA. So there'll be a really good field, I would think, for the girls and the men's. It's Australian and European tour co-sanctioned. So, um, interesting event. That's in like three weeks. That'll be fun. Um, it's actually the course that my parents used to live right on. So that's kind of fun. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, it's a really good. I hope it does well, and I hope it moves because I really do think. People want to see the women. I think women's golf is really good now. I think it's a it's a really entertaining thing to watch, and I think it's it's more it's closer to what the average guy plays, at least from a power perspective. So I think the average guy could probably get quite a lot, learn quite a lot out of watching the girls play. That's um, one of my uh, kind of one of my resolutions. I'm going to do more women's stuff, you know, with coverage. And uh, I believe golfers. I mean, they're different. It's different. Um, different style of golf that they play from the men's but it's, they're incredibly good i mean some of these girls they can go days without hitting it offline like days like they'll hit hybrids from 210 lydia Coe for a period there i mean she did a hybrid inside 10 feet all day you know like all month she do it for for six months it was incredible um there's so they're doing a lot right do you once you once you get used to the lack of the the, the less power 
Have you ever used to see do a lot right? Have you ever thought about design like how you would design a golf course, like say TPC Sawgrass, but for women? Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to watch them play more and, and see their carry distances and stuff. Sawgrass for them would be. I'd like to see them play Sawgrass off sensible tees. Um, but like, if you like Sawgrass got designed for tour pros, if you mm-hmm. designed a golf course specifically for women's championship golf, how much different it would look than a men's championship course? Yeah, I don't know. Like, what do you think? I mean, that they don't spin the ball as much. I think, I think you could put you... more contours. Uh-huh. I think you could you'd have less width. Yeah, I think you could definitely have less width. I mean, I'm a width guy, but yeah. They are so straight. They're very very straight hitters. And you could use contours so much more because of the lack of spin. You know, they mm-hmm. are, you you could have places to bank them off of from certain sides of the fair. I think it would be one of the most fascinating projects ever. I think it would be interesting would be uh, instead of I think the perfect course for modern LPGA would be one of these classic top 50 courses from the original men's tees. I think Shinnecock from the original tees. That would yeah. be pretty special. You know what I mean? Like national. Oh, my goodness. National golf links from the normal, from the old tees. Augusta from the members tees. I mean, that's kind of what they're going to do, right? This amateur tournament. Um, I'm it, so- they're perfect courses. I mean, they're great. There's no forced carries on these up into the greens generally a lot of these places. And it's really just that extra 50 or 70 that the guys need on their driver just to make them hit sensible second shots. I think that'd actually be Shinnecock National, Augusta, Oakmont. Off the, well, Oakmont would be a challenge. But off the off the original men's tees, I think some of these might be uh, – What about Pinehurst like Juana Moisset? Juana Moisset would be incredible. Wow. You, this, I'm, I'm really surprised that – one great old club hasn't looked at what Augusta has done from a business side of things for with the masters and said, why don't we do something like this, just like this for the women? Well, the trouble, the, 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 the Rancho tournament's the big one, right? And the trouble is it's such an uninspiring venue. That you, you could have been it, don't you think? You don't like Poppy's Pond? Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> Look, I, I played a lot in Palm Springs. I like playing in that valley and that desert, but that is so typical of like that desert, that last hole, and they jump in that pond. Of, uh, it's, it's not so Augusta, bad. is it? Yeah, it's not one of my It's not Augusta. I mean, um, it's like, created something because of the history, right? I mean, it shows you even a kind of an average-looking course can create something if you play there every year. This uh, Shinnecock could be that because Shinnecock was like from its founding, like super women-focused. Mm. Uh, welcoming. I think they had women members in 1895. Well, if you actually look at all that's what happens when you go to Scotland, um, and a lot of the the ladies were like, I mean, probably like modern society too. In in some respects, they were kind of like the boss in a way. I mean, the men were like the gin and tonic drinkers, and like the, the, they they were. But the women had much more higher level than over say golf pros and stuff. Um, they there's lots of pictures. Uh, of the ladies playing golf in Scotland, like all dressed up and fancy. So there's a big history of them being a really respected big part of the game. So um, the old course would be incredible for the girls. I know they played there, what, last year, two years ago, yeah, three years two, ago? two years. I think two years ago. It's Off that... the original tee. I don't know which tees they played, but the you, you play the first, you walk straight to the second tee across. You know, you play from there, you play the third. Like you do it the proper way. I think St. Andrews would be really good for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like that's not a... walking back 50 on every hole. I, I actually heard that Shinnecock is, you know, for for us, Shinnecock's way tougher than National. But for ladies, I've heard that Shinnecock is easier than National. Right. Interesting. It's funny. I had that experience once. I mean, this is not an LPGA to PGA thing, but I was at Pinehurst when we played the back-to-back ones. When was that? Three or four years ago? Twenty. And I was in the... 12? Was it that long ago? 2013. 2014, right? When Kyma won and Michelle won, yeah. the girl won. The ladies won. Um, but I was in the bar like Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday of that week at the Pinehurst Hotel. And like there was a local couple there who come, who, who snowbird there every year and come there and play. And I, we were just talking about all the courses at Pinehurst and where do you play and what do you like? And you guys probably don't like number two, right? Is it too hard? And they're like, well, actually. And they were, 
15 handicappers or something. Husband and wife. And they're like, actually, number two is the easiest for us by a long way. The rest are the hard ones. We like number two because we always hit the fairway and we get near the green. We can just put it up under the green and we've always kind of got a putt for par or we either make par or bogey. Like, because they don't chip. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Putters number two is the hardest course in the whole world. So, but for a 15 handicap, 18 handicap, 12 handicap guy, Pinehurst number two is actually pretty easy because you're not forced to carry anything. You don't have any magic. You can bump it along the ground and play it all day, but we find it impossible, right? To me, that Shinnecock would be like that too. And I think depending, it was just a lesson in the style of golf you play can completely change how difficult a course play. Just because you're better in one respect doesn't mean it makes that particular course easier. You know, like what the women do might make Shinnecock easier than what we do. Yeah, and it changes. It's different, isn't it? It's an interest. It's interesting. There's just not every style of golf finds every course hard or easy. It's different. And it usually, like with everything in golf, it's actually counterintuitive. Always. It's and that's where so much went wrong. Is people said we have to make it harder, so we have to do this because this is what makes it harder for really good players and made it unplayable for the regular guy. But what is harder? See, someone. That's, that's a great question. I mean, the relativity to par, I mean, is what we really use as a definition of harder. The USGA says they don't, but they're pretty intent on us not going too far under par, right? What about challenge? Challenge versus hard. Difficult. Yeah, or difficult. That's, That's something I thought a ton about this summer. Well, I think it has to be... Let's, let's, the difference, so I would say Augusta, I always pick on Augusta because everybody knows it, right? It's a great, every, if the analogy works because everybody watches it every year. That is challenging all the way around. They are really difficult shots, but it's challenge. It's on. Every shot is on and possible. If you had a great shot on 15 or on that front right pit on 16, that gnarly little one on Friday, if you had a great shot, you've got a, a reasonable area. You'll have a very easy birdie putt if you hit the shot. But if you don't, you are left with a very challenging situation, but it's on. Where difficult would be like Oakmont. And Oakmont, there are shots on that course. You have no chance, like absolutely no chance. So the whole field is in the same spot. Basically, the skillful guy and the least skillful guy are the same golfer from that situation. I don't think that's – and that's kind of happens with the USGA. If you're trying to compress scoring or like really keep the scoring high – you end up pushing all the talent into the same place because six-inch deep rough, everybody hits the same shot at a six-inch deep rough. You know what I mean? But the front right pin at Augusta on Friday, while the guy who's playing really well, he hits a great little nine on in there, he hits it close, he makes birdie. The guy who knows he's not playing well but he's being smart, he hits it short of the pin on the bottom tier and has an easy two-putt. The guy who like takes a bit too much on, he hits it right of the green, he makes a six or something. Like That's not as much difficult. It's really difficult to hit the right shot, but it's, it's challenge. Like, it's a challenge. Like, the shot is on. If you can hit the shot, the shot is there for you. Whereas, ultimately hard, sometimes at Pinehurst, you just can't even hit the ball in the green. Like, that. It's a, it's a, it's a fine line, the difference between challenge and difficulty, but it's definitely um, important, don't you think? Yeah. What you said makes sense. Like, to me, like, the most frustrating rounds are when you're off. And, like, if you're playing a golf course and you're just making a ton of bogeys, right? But you're not... You're just not hitting good shots, right? But if if it's really hard and it's really thick, you're probably still going to make bogeys. But you, the guy that's playing really well is going to make bogeys too. So mm-hmm. it, it almost compresses. It's like the variance thing. It's why Shinnecock yes. and, and, and Chambers Bay, they allowed people that were, they allowed the people that were playing really well to separate themselves. Which I think is uh, a hallmark of a challenging course rather than out-and-out hard course. A challenge would spread fields. And I think every player on tour would, whether they kind of acknowledge it or not and notice it or not, we all like the courses that spread the field or the setups that spread the field. Um, Let's say we played Avenel, TPC Avenel, last couple of years, and they've got a great superintendent there who's actually from Australia. Um, Steve Britton. Great guy. And his... Brilliant, and maybe the best superintendent we've got at the TPCs in the TPC network, probably at least from my perspective. I love how he sets up a course, and he does a great job. Um, that last year, not last year, that's now eighteen, seventeen. 
we had 12 under leading after two rounds and a cut was four or five over. To me, that's absolutely perfect in perfect weather. Whereas, uh, So we had the guys who were playing well could shoot five or six under for a round, no problem, because it was challenging. But if they hit the good shots, the score was there. But as soon as you were off, um, then you struggled. And so when you get 12 under to four over cut, 16 shot spread on Thursday to Friday, that's almost unheard of. To me, that's all about the superintendent. I mean, good weather and everything worked, but that's great setup, allowing the players playing well to have a good score, but really testing the guys who haven't got it that week. Didn't, didn't like eight under win players that? Until eight under won it in the end, yeah. It was um, Stanley it was and Howell. Stanley, Howell. Stanley and Charles Allen playoff, yeah. And you think about those guys like as precise ball strikers as there are when they're on. Oh, yeah, incredible. It's just... And that was firm greens and firm fairways that weren't super narrow, but they were firm enough that if the ball, if you hit that little draw out of the toe and it landed on the left-hand side of the fairway, it was probably going to dribble into the left rough at some point, which wasn't the end of the world, but it took the spin off the ball. And now you had a, a firm bent grass green that was going to take a big bounce. And now actually, I don't really want to hit the green. I want because if I try to hit it on the green, it's going to go in the back bunker and then I'm screwed. Like it's bounce on the course is really important. And that, that setup created, You'd have to, it'd be interesting. I don't know if you looked at the variance of that actual tournament um, and that course that year, 17 at Avenal. Um, to me, that's that's a perfect setup. When when the leader shoots 18 under or 20 under for the week, I don't mind that if the guy who finishes fifth finishes seven under, you know, like which just happens at the Masters, right? You get spread. And it always feels like it allows the player playing well to show that he's playing well. Now, sometimes these setups, you get the leader at 10 and you get six under as 29th. You know, there's just such a dense amount of offers. It's kind of easy to shoot two under and hard to shoot six under. You know, a lot of our courses you can kind of just quite easy to shoot one or two under every day. And it's much difficult, very difficult to go much lower than that because of how punishing the misses get. So you get that whole field within four or five shots, and it's less interesting than that master's kind of feel where you've got 10 shots between, like, leader and fifth, you know? Yeah, and it's like the most, the least varied um, masters are when it rains. And what I noticed was, like, 2000, I, I, I've been watching old masters lately on YouTube. I, I, I forgot Darren Clark had a soul patch, number one. That was like a... Did he? Yeah, didn't age well. The highlights and (laughs) soul patch. Um, But, like, then you see the rough, and then you see the scores. Like, it was like a total knee-jerk to Tiger, and you saw the scores were, like, you know, six under, seven under, and it was just, like, so much different of a... And it was a much more bunched leaderboard, too. Mm. Yeah, it's... Look, look, there's... I. There's an element, if I was a tournament promoter or the PGA Tour or Augusta, sometimes having a dense leaderboard and not being able to separate it maybe makes for a compelling tournament, right? Can do from entertainment in the right situation. But also, uh, Henrik and Mickelson at Troon, that's a more compelling tournament. In fact, that might be the most compelling tournament we've had in the last 10 or 12. I mean, it was just incredible. And there's only two guys, and that proves that that was challenging, not hard, because you wouldn't have got two guys being 20 under if it was out now. You don't get two guys at 20 under at Oakmont, you know what I mean? They're two over, right? They they beat third by 10 shots or something. I mean, it's just, to me, obviously it was really, really difficult, Troon, but it created such a compelling situation with two guys who are clearly the best two players in the field. Obviously, one of those two were going to win, and not always... The, the, the two best players in the field get themselves in that situation, you know, and I think that's compelling to watch. So I think lots of people with a chance is cool. That situation was more cool. This, uh, th- this year, the Open, after that one, and this year, I think it's my favorite major now. That's yeah, pretty special. It's The Masters, I think, I, I'm going to have equal favorites. Um from a player's perspective, the Masters is such a treat that uh, it's hard to look past it from all the stuff outside of the first two to the 18th green, which is amazing anyway. Um, but you get so looked after. The British Open has some 
interesting little side things once you get off the course because of the towns you're going to and the the travel involved and the narrow roads and the oh, oh, this is the, the logistically the open can get really interesting where they've played but on the golf course it's the funnest the league stuff i mean it's just so fun it's because it's everyone generally everyone's game you can find your advantage over other people in certain areas. The short game guys have an advantage in certain respects and the long game guys have a good advantage. You know, if they, if they play to their strengths and the good putters always have a good advantage, they play to their strength. There's something for everyone. There's a chance for Zach Johnson. There's a chance for Brooks Kepka in the open championship, you know, and everyone in between. And that isn't true of say a U.S. open at Torrey Pine South or Beth page black, you know, it just isn't, you know, and, and even the master, even the masters, to be fair, is probably getting really difficult for a Zach Johnson type player to win it. He, he can in the right situation. Zach Johnson, Trevor Woman, not just not the non-bomber, um, can, but it's less likely. Whereas the Open, it's very likely, right? Every, any any year given, anybody can win that tournament. And really, it's probably from that respect, it's probably the, and everybody can qualify for it. It's completely open. Um, it might be the best tournament. This, that respect. And the courses the are the open. shortest. The shortest, definitely. Short. It, it seems to me short. Like, why? This is, was my revelation at Wiley this week. It was firm, it was shorter. It, all of a sudden, everybody could play it, everybody could win. Like you said before, like everything in golf seems to be opposite. It seems like that sometimes with golf courses. If we went shorter and firmer, it would actually get more difficult. And longer and softer. You know, it's that contrary thing that golf every now and then throws up. It would certainly get more interesting. Um, shorter and firmer. So, like you say, Wiley, all of a sudden, like, like they're tricky and it's compelling to watch and different stuff. And it's, they're not all hitting driver for every tee. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's certainly, it's, it's just as credible a way to test the best players as Beth Page Black is. Yeah. You know, or it's... Torrey Pine South, like just down at length and difficulty. Is it, is it because there's no prerequisite? No, and isn't tournament golf more compelling when you do have Zach Johnson or Zach Johnson coming up the last against Brooke Kep- Brooks Kepka, and you have Tommy Fleetwood playing against Bubba Watson? I mean, it's just the the variety, the different variety, and the and the Molinari and the Rory McIlroy. Like it's just there's such so many different ways to have less shots over 70. There's so many different areas of 280 shots that you can find a little advantage in that we just, it, that, are, that a platform that everyone's game can find one on is more interesting it's, it's rather like, than just the long guy. It's like boxing. Like if when box two boxers have two completely different styles, it's a, a far more compelling fight. Yes. Yeah. Southpaw fight's always more interesting, right? Riding in a lefty or yeah. um, aggression and defense. And boxing's lost it with me, but you're right. It's variety. It's, it's George Thomas, the spice of life. Exactly. That's, yeah. it, it really is it. And I think modern, we've, I think society in general, we like, we see something that we like and then we try to make everything like that, right? Yeah. It's, um, that's like, while I should be, if you're worried about scoring, just make it par 68. That the whole scoring relative to par is so nonsense. It's it is. It's really it's the USGA's biggest sticking point. And they'll they will argue till they're blue in the face that they don't care about score relative to par, but that is just not true. Like it isn't. Um you you just wouldn't do what they were doing if you were unless well, you were worried about the scores. This Shoot. this year was a complete knee jerk to the year before where everybody was up in arms about how low Brooks Kepka shot on a par seventy two course. Which, by the way, was long and soft. Um, it's the. It's it's very difficult to set up a golf course if the mentality was I want to set up Shinnecock as well as I can. You'd have a very hard time not setting it up well because it just is. It's it's set up well three hundred and sixty days a year, right? It's just naturally it is. Um, but if you try to set it up hard, how are we going to get these guys? Oh, they're all going to make birdie here. How do we stop that? Oh, they're all going to make birdie here. How do we stop that? If you do that on every single hole, which is their mentality, you have to get the greens to 18 because there's no other way in some situations. To me, it's just a... But if they gave up the score relative to par thing or just changed the par, like you said, to 68, I would, 
say this to people about Oakmont. It's like, well, if par, if Oakmont was a par 80, would it then be an easy course? No. Or is it the same course? It's the, it's same. the same course, right? Yeah. That's... But if it was a par 80, I'd break par, I'd shoot minimum five or six under every time I played. So is then an easy course? I mean, it's, it's, that's how nonsensical the par argument is. It's, um, it's funny because, so we had the state am at, at my home course a couple of years ago. And uh, they turned a par five into par four, and everybody's like, "Man, that they, it's such crap! They turned that into par four. I go, "Why?" And they're like, "Well, it's it's hard now." I go, "Well, if I make a five on it, I'm pissed anyways." Yeah, it's the same hole. <laughs> the tee's in the same place. The hole is cut in the same place, and you have to hit the same shots. It's it's and your your, it's your objective of how that's yeah, it's, it's subjective positioning really. Your objective as a golfer is to shoot the lowest score. Yeah, but we're all caught up in that. I mean, I used to get caught up in that. And, and and there's look, there's an element of par that's kind of important. Let's say, again, I'll pick on the Masters, the thirteenth. The thirteenth would be wouldn't be a great par four. No, but it's a it's maybe the best hole in the world as a par five, because the par five gives you the option on the tee to not have to go for it in two, so you can play it out to the right, out to the right, wedge to 30 feet. You were never going to do that if it was a par four, so you would always try to hit on the green in two, and it would be slightly less a hole. So par is important, but it's completely in the head. In that it situation, it's important. It's you know? the same thing with the psychology. Like People make way more par putts than they make birdie putts from the same length. I've always done that. Why? It sucks, that. I, well, it I doesn't suck, but it's, it's... I don't get it. It's, it's a fact across all golfers, though. Yeah. I'm like a great par putter, miserable birdie putter, and I it plagues me. There's something about we don't we're comfortable missing a birdie putt because we we let ourselves make par, but we don't let ourselves make bogey or something like. That. There's some sort of not refusing to make bogey headspace for me anyway. Like I don't if I miss a birdie putt, I'm like, oh, that's a shame. But if I miss a par putt, I get angry. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, Maybe I'm more involved, more into par parts or something. I, well, it's it's all expectation. It's, it is, which shows you that it's completely in the head, and the, the the measuring the difficulty of a course, like in relation to par, is not the way to do it. So, and that's probably why you get some distorted setups sometimes. Tom Tom Doak, um, I was asking him. We were playing golf, and I was asking him about the we were playing at the loop which is a reversible course and like mm-hmm. tom Doak courses kind of give me fits because i'm like i'm always on edge when i'm approaching his greens you know he's got mm-hmm. and i was asking him about i was like why are these courses always like the slopes like 120 and he's like i figured out that the way that the the usga you know or the, they rate and slope this and i'm probably butchering this but he he figured out that on long holes he makes greens long and skinny like we talked about this a little bit earlier because Mm -hmm. good players miss those right yeah and then on short Mm -hmm. holes he makes them short and wide and the the slope and rating system don't pick up on that so these low scores but they give me they i i can't like they get in my head so bad and and for the regular player, it's like how they miss. Like a, a, a regular 15 handicap is going to miss a 450-yard green almost every time, whether it's skinny or the widest green in the world. Mm-hmm. But a good player is going to miss that skinny green a lot. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's the great architecture that brings the scratch handicapper and the 18 handicapper closer together, right? That, that, that it's actually kind of it's it's easy to break 90 for a 90 shooter and it's hard to break par for a tour guy you know whereas a lot of these modern ultra long things are relatively easy for us and really difficult for the average guy yeah that's i always go back to golf club of houston you know where you guys played (laughs) yeah and uh i'd play with my buddy who lived in houston and he's like a 10 and we'd be looking for balls the whole time and every time i'd go out there and then, like the 18th hole always gave me fits there, but I'd always be yeah. playing really great golf, like until the 18th hole. And it, and I'd be, and I thought about it the more and more. It's like this place is pretty easy for a regular guy. There's nothing that really scares me. Mm-hmm. But for like the 10 handicap, it's it's a disaster. There's water everywhere. 
That's a nightmare, of course. I would think, like you said, the 10 handicap. But you're not alone. That 18th tee at Houston, if you polled the tour players, that would be in their top three or four least liked tee shots. 18 at Houston is the hardest driver of the year almost. Right, really hard. Because it's it's all water or or a bunker you can't hit the green from. That's your two choices. Like. <laughs> that's that's a perfect par example, though. Where if you just approach it as a par five, you'd probably play it probably three times. If you approached it as a par five, you would always have a par putt. Yeah. Would be the difference. Whereas if you approach it as a par four, you're often dropping it and hitting your fourth shot from 50 yards short because your second one went in the water or something. You know, you always have a par putt. If you went short right, 20, 30 yards short right of the green, and you would, you could do that 99% of the time if that was your intention to be 25, 30 yards short right of the green every time. And you would pitch it reasonably and you'd have inside 15 feet for par every time. Yeah. And that green's really easy. New, new Houston course. So, um, Memorial Park's going to be great. That's going to be unbelievable for for golf and the tour, you know? It might be one of the best. They fumbled the decision a little bit for a while. The shell was out and they couldn't make it work. And Tom uh, will do a good job. It's a good prop. I don't know if you've been there, but it's, it's Texas's Beth, Beth Page. I mean, it's it could be pretty special. I mean, it's not going to be as good a course as Beth Page, but it's as a venue, it's a better venue. Or it's the best venue in golf. Those ravines and, and then uh, I, th- I think he's going to go with very few bunkers. We, 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 we had a, I had a look one year when there was talk about doing it and it's already really kind of long um, and it has that Muni feel like kind of under uh, maintained bunkers and stuff and not many and I think it, it suits not a lot of bunkers the property, you know. It's a cool place. I mean, people are going to be blown away. The guys are going to love it. and it's, it's, It could go to everyone's favorite tournament like or one of the most successful tournaments straight away because Houston, Texas is massive for golf, right? And Houston's all the money and it is literally in the middle of downtown. Like, what other tour event is that happening? Like, it's just not. It's a, it, really? hopefully, hopefully it turns out being good. I think it will. So, hey, um, well, uh, you want you want to wrap this up? Yeah, I mean, look, we can do this. Uh, yeah, all day, but. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so that it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing. Playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. Not to be feared, though, it's actually a pretty easy shot to hit.